none of the content in this podcast constitutes medical advice or should be construed as a recommendation to use psychedelics. There are psychological, physical, and sometimes legal risks with such usage. Please consult your doctor before considering anything we discuss in this episode. Gateway Sciences, leading the human race to inner space. Welcome to the Gateway Sessions podcast, where we discuss the science of psychedelics, mental health, optimal human wellness, longevity, cutting-edge nutrition, and more science-based tools for improving your life. I'm Ariana Summer, and I'm the Global Innovation and Research Leader for Gateway Sciences. We are currently witnessing the unfolding of the psychedelic time. Major global neuroscience research institutes are focusing on psychedelic research projects. The field of psychedelics is not fringe anymore. It is part of cutting-edge neuroscience and healthcare research, and it is where psychiatry is heading. Our guest today is at the forefront of psychedelic research and may be the only person who has legally taken MDMA, LSD, DMT, ketamine, and psilocybin. We are thrilled to have Dr. Ben Sessa, co-founder and chief medical officer at Awaken Life Sciences, join Gateway Sessions today. Awaken Life Sciences is a biotechnology company researching, developing, and commercializing psychedelic therapeutics to treat addiction with a near-term focus on alcohol use disorder. Recently featured on the Netflix documentary series, How to Change Your Mind, Ben has been a leading voice in psychedelic research in the UK for over 15 years through his affiliations with Imperial College London. Dr. Ben qualified as a medical doctor from UCL in 1997 and went on to specialize in psychiatry, where he has worked in the field of addictions and trauma with children, adolescents, as well as adult patients for 30 years. Dr. Ben was one of the first medical cannabis psychiatric prescribers in the UK and is an approved and registered MDMA, ketamine, and psilocybin therapist. He has led research into MDMA-assisted therapy for alcohol use disorder and has published widely in the academic and medical press. Dr. Ben is also the author of the critically acclaimed books, The Psychedelic Renaissance, as well as Altered States, and the novel To Fathom Hell or Soar Angelic. Dr. Ben Sessa, welcome and thank you for joining us on Gateway Sessions today. It's great to connect with you. Hello, Ariana. It is a superb pleasure to be here. Thanks for inviting me. I'm looking forward to our chat. Absolutely. As do I. You are truly somebody who has done so much cutting edge work in the area that we're going to be talking about. And you also may be the only person that has legally taken MDMA, LSD, ketamine and psilocybin. Can you tell us how this came to pass, please? Yeah, actually, it's LSD, ketamine, psilocybin, MDMA, and DMT. So I have been administered all of those in research protocols. And as part of my training, I'm a trained and approved MDMA, psilocybin, and ketamine psychotherapist. But I've also done a lot of work in neurophysiology and uh, neuroimaging through my role at Imperial College London. And that's involved all of those different compounds. And so I was both administering those or receiving those as part of that 
those are imaging studies. So yeah, I don't think there's many people in the world who can legally say they've had all of those on record, but I have. Outstanding. And a lot of practitioners and therapists may have actually tried these things, but often they feel like they can't talk about it depending what jurisdiction they live in and what the legal status is. At present, the media is full of the following words, the psychedelic renaissance. And you actually published your book carrying that same title in 2012. What's your perspective on this renaissance today? Yeah, it's firstly, it's really great to hear that term being used so widely, because it was over 10 years ago that I used that term in that book. It, we really are in a sense of psychedelics. If we think about the different eras of psychedelics in medicine, there was work in the 19th century with mescaline and uh, nitrous oxide in the early 20th century. That's often called the first psychedelic era. The second era encompasses the 1950s to the end of the 1960s with the discovery of LSD and the early uses in psychiatry. We then had this kind of what people call the dark ages bit between the end of the 60s and the beginning of the 90s, where not much was happening because of all the, the ban of LSD and psilocybin. But it was during that dark ages bit that MDMA started being used. And then since the 90s, we've had this, what some people are calling the third era or the third wave or the psychedelic renaissance with a whole new plethora of research since the 90s. And yeah, we're in a very exciting time right now, Ariana, because we are now moving away from just academic research in universities and towards actually building clinics and developing treatments and impacting on healthcare. So it's not just about research, it's now about treating patients. Absolutely, Ben. So indeed, it's really exciting times we're experiencing now. And I would like to hear your take on why this is happening now, and also how this movement or how this development differs from the movement we experienced as it was expressed by the so counterculture of the 60s. Really great question. Why are we in this renaissance? I think there's a number of ways of answering that. One, one answer is just simply time. A lot of time, a lot of water was gone under the bridge since the 1960s. Today's generation of doctors and young people don't even know who someone like Timothy Leary was. So we've moved on a lot. So just time. In the 60s, when psychedelics exploded onto the scene recreationally, there was this kind of cultural push that psychedelics were going to transform the world and we'll all live together in chemical utopia if only everyone can drop LSD. And I think that that narrative is no longer being used. The world is in a very different space. It's going to take a lot more than just psychedelics to save humanity. And so we're adopting a much more sober and conservative approach that's much more science and data driven than just cultural change. So that's one reason. Another reason is in recent years, we've had all this wonderful neuroimaging. So we can now look at the pictures of the brain and look at how that works. And this adds a kind of sciencey element to the research that we didn't have so much in the 60s. So that makes it more attractive to regulatory authorities and scientific bodies that there's this more kind of sciencey approach. I think another thing is the internet and the connectivity. We have today 
Um, it's interesting. We talk about the psychedelic 60s. I would say that today is way more psychedelic than we ever were in the 60s. There's far more people taking psychedelics recreationally than ever before. We have all of these psychedelic societies and groups and clubs and gatherings and conferences and gigs and festivals with a wonderful network of connectivity between them all because of the internet. So it's all of those things. But I think the primary thing is what I call patient power. I think patients themselves with mental health illnesses have had enough of the biological model of the last 50 years of psychiatry. They've been sitting on Prozac for 40 years. They're not getting any better. They're doing a few sessions of CBT. They're not getting any better. And patients themselves are driving this. They are turning to their doctors quite rightly. And I've been sitting on this SSRI for 40 years. What else have you got in that medicine cabinet of yours? Because this ain't working. So I think that there's this real push for something new and innovative. And psychedelics represent the newest, most effective and innovative form of technology that we've had in mental health for a very long time. And what we're doing with psychedelics is really changing the entire paradigm of how we treat mental illness. So this top-down biological model of taking SSRIs every single day in, day out for weeks, months, decades, just to hold back symptoms is, is not, not what we do with psychedelics. Psychedelics are much more analogous to surgery. If you break your leg, you go in, you have that broken bone fixed by a surgeon in a intensive upfront piece of treatment, and then you're better and you're discharged and you never see that surgeon again. In psychiatry, we've painted ourselves into this corner of keeping patients on the books forever and just papering over the cracks with these drugs like SSRIs to treat the symptoms, but never actually getting to the root cause fixing them and getting them out the door. Now that's what we do with psychedelics. It's an upfront intensive treatment to get them better and back to full functioning rather than just keeping them on the books and patching them up for the rest of their lives. So it's a real whole new paradigm. And I'm so glad this new paradigm is happening as you and I exist and all these people who are really in desperate need for help, not just to numb symptoms, but to truly heal. You're actually also calling the time we live in the psychedelic time, and it's truly a sort of a psychedelic psychiatric renaissance. What does the mainstream public and what do policymakers who are not quite yet aware or even comfortable with this need to understand? Okay, another great question. I think that all of us involved in mental health and the general public and the policymakers and are aware of the inefficiency of current modern psychiatry and the patients themselves. We know that this just doesn't work. And so I think that even the regulatory authorities, even the more conservative regulatory authorities are opening their eyes to this because they can just see that it's just not working. There's also a very strong economic argument for psychedelics. I often say this in my talks, there's nothing more expensive than an untreated psychiatric patient. They cost millions over a lifetime. They, they have their legs amputated, they need new livers, their children are taken away by social services, they can't work, they're on disability benefits, they offend, they go to prison, all kinds of costs that go with the poorly treated psychiatric patient. Psychedelic therapies may seem expensive, and indeed they are more expensive than just giving someone a packet of Prozac. It is a more intensive, expensive upfront treatment, but it works. 
and it therefore works economically as well. So you would not, if you're going back to the broken leg analogy, if you had a broken leg, you wouldn't say, oh, I'm not going to have that surgery because it's quite expensive. I'm just going to keep taking painkillers and hobble around for the rest of my life on painkillers with a broken leg. You just wouldn't say that. You'd say, yes, it's expensive to go into surgery and mend this leg, but of course I'm going to do it. Now, why don't we do the same for psychiatry? So I think we will. And I I think that regulatory and approval agencies will, will wake up to this. It's not only the right moral, ethical and clinical thing to do, but it's also the right financial thing to do because the huge burden of mental health problems throughout the world is becoming untenable and ridiculously expensive. So if psychiatry, if psychedelic psychotherapy can be shown to work, then it's, it makes absolute sense. And I think that regulatory authorities are waking up to this. So there's not as much of a backlash as you might think from regulatory authorities. The difficulty is that all drug development is expensive and takes a lot of time. It takes roughly $100 million to go from the chemist's workbench with a new molecule to the doctor's prescription pad with a new medicine. It takes about 15 years, 20 years, and about $100 million. And that's just the same for all drugs. And so psychedelics have to go through these loops, jump through these hoops. And the regulatory authorities don't see MDMA and psilocybin as any different from paracetamol or penicillin or aspirin or antibiotic. And they're not. They're just drugs. And they need to go through these different phases of research. And it's very costly and it takes a long time. But we're really very close now. And that's what's very exciting about the current climate. 100%, Ben. And I love that you brought up the cost, you know, what it costs society. So even if you look at it purely pragmatically, the millions of dollars in untreated or not well-treated, effectively treated mental health patient actually accumulates over a lifetime. And not even to speak on what we miss out on, people who are not able to fulfill their fullest, highest potential and how they could contribute not only to their own lives, their families' lives, but to the human family overall. And you were just uh, talking about that also regulators are waking up to this. And what are some things that if we look back, for example, at the 60s, what are what can we learn from some of the mistakes of the past to ensure that we get it right this time, walking through this process? Yeah, it's so important that we get this right. We can't afford to lose this second opportunity and go into another 50 years of prohibition and continue with the current model. So it's essential we get it right. Like I said, one of the ways of getting it right is to be driven by the science and the data. I No, don't get me wrong. I'm a big fan of psychedelic culture. I love festivals and hippies and raves and psychedelic culture and all the color that goes with that. But unfortunately, that is not going to get this over the line. The way to get this over the line is to work with authorities, not against them. And I think it's that what we're starting to see is a bit of a kind of kickback from the psychedelic, from some aspects of the psychedelic community, particularly say underground therapists who've been using plant medicines for years. If we're going to move this forward, we need to do so by working with authorities, not underground, because that's not going to help. So we need to stay overground. We need to have rigorous scrutiny and supervision and training of therapists. We need to have good medicines management and good clinical governance and careful management of safeguarding issues. All of these things need to be up front and center in, in the new psychedelic medical movement. Because if we don't do those things, then it won't have the kudos that it requires to be a mainstream treatment. 
And like I said, there's some kickback from some aspects of the psychedelic community. I was at a conference not long ago and somebody, a plant medicine underground therapist stood up and says, doctors, get your hands off our sacred medicines. And it's a start, they're not your sacred medicines. These are just medicines. And we've had 50, 75 years of psychedelics in culture, yet they are still banned. And most people don't want to break the law. They don't want to go to an underground therapist. They don't want to go and sit in a yurt and take mushrooms from a shaman, stroke healer, stroke teacher, stroke guru. They want to go to a doctor and have it prescribed there. And I think they should. So there's a bit of a kickback that medicalization equals commercialization or corporatization. I don't see it that way. I think medicalization equals accessibility. Now, if you fear the medical profession and you don't want to do that, then don't. You can still pick mushrooms and go to raves. That's not going away. But what we're going to have is both and rather than either or. So I think the medicalization is a great thing and it needs to be done above ground and with a great deal of scrutiny. And then we will be making these treatments more accessible to more people. 100%, Ben. And this is what it's all about to bring healing to as many people as possible and in a way and form where they feel safe and well taken care of yeah. whatever they choose like you just said whether they want to pick their own mushrooms or whether they prefer to go into a medical setting speaking about medical settings how are you how is your work received by your fellow clinicians i've been working with psychedelics for almost 20 years now and generally most clinicians are open-minded about this most doctors are driven by what works well and safely for their patients so if psychedelic therapies provide safe and efficacious treatments most doctors would have no reason not to embrace them they're not just going to irrationally irrationally shun them just because they happen to have a history as banned drugs. We need the data to drive that. And that's why in some ways the, the war on drugs and the banning of all of these compounds for so long has been a real impediment to progress because so, so many people, both within the medical profession and certainly the general public, have been told this for the last 50 years, that drugs like MDMA, psilocybin, LSD, cannabis even, are dangerous, killer, addictive drugs that are that damage to individuals and society, where in fact, it's just not the case. These are all medicines that can be used safely with the right safeguards in the right settings. So going back to your question, what do my colleagues think? They're all broadly accepting. And I think that the general public and the politicians will be accepting too, once they get to see the data and understand the progress. Yes. And you actually have said that is the greatest socio-political folly of the last 60 years. I'm also very happy that policymakers, politicians are waking up to this. And this is all going in a direction, as we mentioned before, where the benefit can be brought and the healing to most people. Ben, you're chief medical officer at Awaken Life Sciences. You have clinics, your group has clinics in London and Bristol, where you're today, Oslo, Manchester and Dublin are coming soon. Can you tell us a little bit about what's on the horizon for Awaken? 
Yeah, absolutely. A slight correction. I'm head of psychedelic medicine at Awaken Life Sciences. I co-founded this company almost two years ago, and I was chief medical officer when we co-founded the company. I've now handed that over to a colleague who is now the CMO, and I have this exciting new title, co-founder and head of psychedelic medicine, which is freeing me up to do more of the media and communications and dissemination and training type work as well as clinical work. So Awaken Life Sciences is a biotech company and there's a lot of these psychedelic startups all over the world at the moment and some people are making new molecules others are working towards approvals others are doing psychedelic training others are doing building clinics and providing psychedelic therapies in clinics um we're doing all of those things so i think we're the only company that's doing all of those we've got a research and development team a training and ecosystems team and also we're physically building clinics like you mentioned we have three clinics so far, Bristol, London, and Oslo. We're opening another one in Oslo, one in Trondheim in Norway, one in Stockholm, Manchester, Dublin, Edinburgh, Brighton, and more in the UK. We're aiming for 15 to 20 clinics in the next four to five years. One thing that's really important is at the moment, ketamine is the only licensed psychedelic there is. So drugs like psilocybin, MDMA, very useful drugs, but they're not medicines with a capital M. What that means, they've not been approved as treatments for anything. They're research chemicals, if you like. So you can only use MDMA and psilocybin anywhere in the world as part of a research study, whereas ketamine is now available as a treatment. So we're very keen to brand ourselves as a medical psychedelic center, ketamine now, MDMA and psilocybin coming soon. And we're keen to separate ourselves from these ketamine infusion clinics. As ketamine has been explored as a rapid acting antidepressant in the last 10, 15 years. And in the States, I think you've got about 600 ketamine infusion centers. Now, 99% of these are just using ketamine as an antidepressant intravenously with little or no psychotherapy. Now, that's not what we do. We use ketamine as an adjunct to psychotherapy. We work within the ketamine psychedelic space and we use it for a broad range of indications, not just depression. We're also treating anxiety disorders, PTSD, eating disorders and a range of addictions using ketamine as an adjunct to psychotherapy. And so the patient has the same psychotherapist for the whole course who does all the preparation sessions, sits through the drug guided sessions, and then does the integration sessions. So it's a course of psychotherapy in which ketamine is used as an adjunct. So it's a very exciting time for our company. We're very keen to be the leading high street presence where people come to get psychedelic therapy with ketamine now, but with the other compounds as soon as they become available. And research and development arm is very much focused on addictions at the moment, particularly alcohol use addiction. We have a superb scientific team with myself and Professor David Nutt, who's a major psychopharmacologist in the UK. Annie and Michael Mithoffer are on our scientific team, who are pioneers of MDMA therapy. Matthew Johnson from Johns Hopkins University, who's a pioneer of psychedelic therapy with psilocybin for addictions. Celia Morgan in Exeter University, who's a pioneer of ketamine therapy for alcohol use disorder. So we have a stellar scientific team and a superb experienced clinical team in the clinic. So it's a very exciting time for Awaken. And we're really, we have some really inspiring and exciting plans for the future. So watch this space. 
100% Ben and I love I'm familiar with a lot of the names that you mentioned that's really a top tier team and for the audience I'd like to actually take a deeper dive into the therapy you're offering right now and I'd like to demystify the process a little bit how does ketamine therapy work and what can patients expect during and also after treatment yeah, the treatment is, let's say, because it's we have two slightly different protocols, one for alcohol use disorder, which is based on an evidence-based study by Celia Morgan. So it's a specific one for alcohol use disorder. And then we have another protocol for all the other indications, anxiety, depression, other addictions, PTSD, eating disorder. So the Ketamine-assisted psychotherapy program is an eight-week course, and that involves 11 visits over those eight weeks. Four of the sessions are ketamine assisted. So you get to take ketamine four times over the eight weeks. In line with all psychedelic protocols, it's a mixture of drug assisted and non-drug sessions. And the non-drug sessions are essential. You can't, just taking the drug alone is sub-therapeutic. You work with the same therapist for the whole journey. And the first week is two sessions of preparation, non-drug preparation. So it's building up a relationship and an agenda for the therapy. Then weeks two, three, four, and five are a weekly ketamine session, um, a two-hour session. The ketamine is administered intramuscularly, so it's a, a small injection in the shoulder. The experience lasts about 60 minutes, about one hour. So there's a little bit of talk therapy before, then you have the injection. Like most psychedelic therapies, for the majority of that 60 minutes, the patient is encouraged to just lie down, still and quiet, listening to music in headphones and wearing eye shades. There's very little actual talk therapy during the drug experience. Um, and that differs for the different drugs. So for example, MDMA, the patient could often talk a lot during the MDMA experience psilocybin less, but ketamine even less. They generally are just with the drug for that 60 minutes. Then the drug wears off and they can hang around in the clinic. We have a lovely space here with chill out areas. And then when they're feeling ready, they then go home accompanied by somebody. And then they come back the next day for an integration session without the drug. So for those four weeks, it's a weekly session with ketamine followed by a non-drug integration session. Then there's a two week gap then they have a final non-drug evaluation session. So it's an eight-week course. We monitor them with input and outcome measures at the beginning and the end of the course to provide us with some data around efficacy. Obviously, the drug sessions are carried out with high degrees of scrutiny and clinical governance. We have nurses in the clinic, excellent nurses who administer the medication, and there's a doctor present at all times as well. One of the joys of working with ketamine is it's a very safe drug. Although ketamine as an adjunct to psychotherapy is certainly a new and pioneering thing, ketamine itself is not at all new. It's It's been very well used in medicine for the last 40 years as an anesthetic, a very safe anesthetic. In fact, it's the anesthetic of choice in children and the elderly because it's so safe. It doesn't interact with other drugs. It doesn't cause a reduction in breathing. It doesn't cause a significant or sustained blood pressure rise. It doesn't cause any cardiac toxic problems. So it's a very safe drug to use. And of course, the doses we use are much lower than they'd use in anesthesia. So that makes us feel very confident that we're certainly not going to cause any physical harm with the case. Um, and what are the typical doses you would use? Yes, yeah, so we, because we have the four sessions, we start with a dose of 0.5 milligrams per kilogram. It's all done by weight. And at, at that 0.5 dose is, it's a good starting dose. It's enough to certainly, everyone feels it, but 
it's not necessarily a full dissociative experience. What we're aiming for is this full dissociative experience where the patient leaves their body behind and has this internal psychological experience, which is most is the most beneficial thing. So we work up towards that after this initial sort of moderate test dose. And we, we can go up to two milligrams per kilogram if required um, to find, but it's about working with the patient. We like our patients to be at the front and center of their own care plans. So the treatments are bespoke, they're built around what the patient wants. And so we work collaboratively with the patient to decide on the dose according to their last session and where they want to go. Ketamine, the ketamine experience is quite unique, it's peculiar, and it has this very interesting effect of helping a patient to separate out the different parts of themselves. If, if you understand what that means, you're able to look down on yourself from a different angle and see these different parts. It's like, there's my relationship with my kids. There's my relationship with my husband. Here's my history of child abuse. Here's my difficulty with alcohol. And you can look reflectively at these different parts and you can navigate your way around these parts. And then the skill of the psychotherapy is to help the patient to recalibrate their relationship with these parts of themselves. And think, do I have to put so much weighting on my child abuse history? Can I put more weighting on my connectivity with my husband and my kids? And so working with the therapist inside the ketamine space and outside the ketamine space, we get to recalibrate and rebrand or reboot our relationship with ourselves. And the word that comes up again and again is flexibility. It provides you with a broader spectrum of options in which to approach these different aspects of your life. Yes. And Ben, my personal experience, I have found that ketamine, the state induced via the ketamine is neutral or even a little bit euphoric. For me, that meant I could approach a difficult things, traumas of my past from that state versus being scared or angry or all these other emotional loops that I usually would have gone through. And it was so immensely helpful. And I like what you just shared about how this integration process with the therapist then unfolds. Could we go a little bit deeper? I'd like to learn a little bit more about how, especially at Awaken, you approach the integration process. Yes, so the therapeutic model that we're using alongside the ketamine is a form of therapy called acceptance and commitment therapy, or ACT. Now, ACT is, uh, is a completely different model that's not designed for ketamine. It's been used as just a normal psychotherapy for a long time, but it works intuitively very well with ketamine because it's very much about the concept of accepting these parts of ourselves, not denying or suppressing them, not trying to make them go away, but reflecting upon them, accepting them as parts of ourselves, but then learning to let go and to hold them less, hold things lightly. In other words, there's a mindfulness element to it. There's in the ketamine state itself, you are thrown into this instant state of entire, of complete mindfulness. In the ketamine state, you can't really think about last week or next week. You are in the here and now, and you have no choice other than to be in the here and now. And that's a very powerful experience for somebody with depression or anxiety type symptoms or trauma symptoms, because most of the time they're completely bogged down with these ruminations about the past or these worries about the future. Now on ketamine, you just cannot have those worries. You're forced to be in the moment. So what we do is we use that experiential experience to then say to the patient, look, it's possible to think in this way all the time. You don't have to be high on ketamine all the time to do this. 
you can learn these models and strategies to be more mindful and to explore and examine the parts of yourself and learn to let go of the parts that are not moving you towards your values. So again, it's about flexibility. And that actually, interestingly, is very much mirrored in how we know ketamine works neurobiologically. Ketamine is neurogenesis. It actually grows new nerve networks. And you can see this if you take a piece of nervous tissue on a Petri dish and look at it under a microscope and soak it in ketamine, you can see under a microscope new dendrites budding and forming. It actually grows new dendrites. Now, that translates psychologically into new ways of thinking. And most long-term mental disorders are about stuckness and rigidity and doing the same old narratives that develop usually very early in life. I am useless. I am a failure. I deserve to be exploited. It's my fault. Um, and these things often arise through child maltreatment and abuse very early in life, and they become ingrained. And then even as you go into adulthood and you're no longer being attacked or assaulted or abused, they're still there, these old pathways. So in a way, the brain is very lazy. It just does what it's done since it was a child. Mm -hmm. And that's hugely impairing and underpins most chronic mental disorders. Now with ketamine, you get this physical new growth and that translates into, do I have to keep thinking in this way? Do I have to keep behaving in that same way that I've been doing again and again? Or are there new possibilities? So what we're doing is we're using that biological priming effect of neurogenesis and then hitting them with the psychotherapy at that point when this window of opportunity is open and using that to retrain the brain and turn these new pathways into new narratives and mm. new versions of self. And then you don't need to keep taking the ketamine. You've done the work. You have developed a new way of thinking. Yes. Beautiful, Ben. And this actually leads to another question I had, which is how often patients typically return after the initial set of treatments? Yeah. So as I said, when we designed this course, we do not want to be a maintenance therapy clinic. We, I would be very disheartened if I look back at the caseload a couple of years from now and I see the same patients on the books again and again. That's not why we're doing this. We because myself and the team are trained in MDMA and psilocybin therapy, we see this as an intensive upfront singular treatment that works and doesn't need to be repeated. However, it's quite possible to repeat it. So we do this eight-week course. We also offer booster courses. So you can do a four-week course afterwards with two sessions of ketamine or a one-week course with one session of ketamine, but always with psychotherapy. We will never give ketamine without the psychotherapy. So far, we've had about five to 10% of people come back for booster courses. We certainly don't have anyone who's just on the books with regular maintenance therapy, but it's pretty early. Uh, so it might, might be a bit early to tell Ariana because we've been open clinically about nine or 10 months. We're gonna do a massive review of the whole caseload at 12 months in October and really have a good look at who's done well, who's done best, what sort of diagnoses have done. We're aiming for this to be a curative one-off treatment, not a maintenance repetitive treatment, but we'll see. Excellent, Ben. And I will be very curious to learn in October what all your data will unveil for you. I'm, I'm aware of the clinical trial. You did a phase two trial that treated alcohol use disorder. And I think, correct me if I'm wrong, but the uh, by the end of the trial, 86% of the participants were able to abstain from alcohol. 
Yeah, so that's the trial conducted by Professor Celia Morgan, who's part of our Awakened Scientific team and works at a nearby university in Exeter, which is in the southwest of England. She carried out the world's first evidence-based psychotherapy treatment with ketamine for AUD. And indeed, 86% of people who underwent ketamine psychotherapy compared to placebo were abstinent of alcohol at, at six months. So that's tremendous. And alcoholic disorder is a huge problem. It's a massive public health concern. It costs in the UK 20 billion pounds a year. It kills millions of patients all over the world. And it's very poorly treated. And I think this is one of the things about psychedelics. In some ways, we can't fail to do well with psychedelics and this renaissance of research because psychiatric treatments, as I said before, are so poorly treated. Alcoholism has a 90% treatment resistance. That is 90% of people who undergo the very best current gold standard medical treatments for alcoholism have returned to drinking at 12 months. That's outrageous. That's an unforgivable outcome after 100 years of modern psychiatry. And PTSD, 60% treatment resistance. These, these patients deserve better. And the psychiatric profession needs to up its game. And I think psychedelics are an example of us doing that. They really are a totally new way of looking at how we do mental health treatments. And addictions are one of those things that are so poorly treated that they really deserve this new attention. I could not agree with you more, Ben. And it's the patients, the individuals, it's their families, is the it's societies as a whole who will benefit from that. And speaking about other compounds, you have also been involved with studies with MDMA, commonly known by the street name Ecstasy. Can you explain to our audience how the therapeutic use of MDMA differs, say, from popping a pill at a party. Yeah, there's no, there's not really any comparison. And, I, and it's really important for us to distance ourselves from recreational use of drugs. You wouldn't ask a surgeon who carries out appendicectomies, how does that different? How does that differ from somebody cutting their appendix out on the kitchen table with a rusty pair of scissors? You wouldn't even ask that question because it's such a dumb question, but we can't help conflating psychedelic research with the recreational use, but it's absurd. There's no comparison. It's not even the same drug. And what even is ecstasy? Ecstasy is whatever your dealer told you it is. And it invariably isn't MDMA at a particularly known dose, plus or minus any other adulterant. So huge differences. One is the impure sample of ecstasy compared to the 99.98% pure MDMA that we use. The pattern of dosing recreationally, people normally take ecstasy at night, they dance, they have poor water balance, they take other drugs, they use amphetamine, cocaine, cannabis, alcohol particularly, they miss out on a night's sleep, they miss out on food, there's no preparation, there's no guidance, there's no post-drug integration. So the differences between clinical MDMA and recreational ecstasy are huge. Some people take ecstasy in a much more pseudo-clinical way, in during the day with a guide and they do it with a specific agenda but most people don't for most people it's a nighttime party drug taken with other drugs and so as a result now having said all that don't get me wrong ecstasy is still incredibly safe that's a data-driven statement we in the uk we for the last 30 years people have been consuming around 750,000 doses of ecstasy every weekend three quarters of a million doses every weekend for 30 years yet ecstasy abuse is not on the scale of it's not a public health concern rates of mortality and morbidity are very low compared to the epidemiology of its use so we know that MDMA is a very safe drug as well. Now, of course, there are some tragic high-profile deaths, increasingly, that we're seeing at the moment. But usually when the toxicology reports come back, 
it's not MDMA, it's some other drug, or it's taken with other drugs. So all of these things are easily safeguarded within a clinical setting. We cannot make any kind of inferences about clinical MDMA based on waivers. Yes, and I think that is so vastly important. And thank you for illuminating this for our audience. I still many times encounter that people have certain preconceived notions about drugs, and they're just not aware of the vast difference between something pure that's given to you in a clinical setting and what they may have heard or even experienced in a completely different setting, such as a party. Yeah. And I think what's also important to mention, and you actually wrote a really great paper about this, is with regard to MDMA, a lot of people, again, taking it recreationally, where it's, you know, who knows what's even in whatever pill they're taking. They're the experience about come downs. Now, can you please tell us about the nature of come downs and how this is very much related to taking something that's not pure, that's not supervised versus what actually happens and the effects, the positive effects somebody gets taking this in a clinical setting. Yeah. So you're relating to a paper that we published six months ago called Debunking the Myth of Blue Mondays. Now, the first thing to say about this is we're not for a second suggesting that the phenomenon of come downs and post ecstasy affect drop doesn't exist. It does exist. It's a very, very well-known phenomenon throughout the recreational ecstasy using community. But what we found in our study across just 26 sessions with MDMA, no come downs at all and no affect drop for a week afterwards. People were left with an afterglow. And we, so we looked at this carefully and MAPS found pretty much the same thing. So MAPS have done 2000 plus MDMA sessions now in the last 15, 20 years, they also found that the vast majority of patients just did not experience a come down or an affect drop in the days afterwards. So then that made us think, what are the factors that differ? And as I said earlier, the main factors are impure sample, concomitant drug use, particularly alcohol, cocaine, amphetamine, cannabis, missing sleep, missing food, and exercising or dancing. Most people take ecstasy in that way with all of those things. And then they feel rotten on a Monday morning. And then they say, oh man, it's serotonin depletion because of that MDMA. It's not, it's a hangover. You've just been large in it for the last three nights. You've barely <laughs> eaten or slept. Of course you feel like rubbish on the Monday morning. When you come to the clinic and you take MDMA at 9.30 in the morning, you've had a good, great night's sleep. You've been working with this therapist for weeks. You've built up this agenda for this treatment. You come to the clinic, you take the MDMA at 9.30 in the morning, you're up and then you're down to baseline by 5 p.m., all the time talking, so being supported by the therapist. You have a bite to eat, you sleep like a baby and you feel great. And we just didn't see any of these come downs. Now, the concept, the, the hypothetical concept of serotonin depletion is a reasonable one. The idea that M MDMA causes this massive release of serotonin and that this could deplete your serotonin stores and then this could cause low mood. It's a good hypothesis, but the truth is, Ariana, this has never actually been prospectively tested. 
No one's actually tested this in a population. It's a study I would love to do if we could get the funding. Can you imagine it? You have different groups. You have groups that take it at 10 a.m., groups that take it at 10 p.m., with dancing, without dancing, with cocaine, without cocaine, with alcohol, without... Nobody would fund such a study because it's a meaningless study, but it would certainly answer this question. So all we could do was base our research on our observations of our study, in which, like you said, when it's taken in a clinical setting with all of those safeguards... You just don't seem to get these come downs. And I have the understanding that there's a target date for rescheduling MDMA and also psilocybin for the second quarter of 2024 in the U.S. Do you have any insights about that or also perhaps about other parts in the world? Yeah, so I've, I'm really good friends with Rick Doblin and everyone at MAPS and have known him for 15, 20 years. And, and Rick and MAPS are leading the MDMA research for PTSD. And they're in phase three development, which is the final phase. And then when all the data is collected, they submit it to the FDA and then they get the drug approved. Now, having known Rick for so long, the goalposts shift all the time. Every time I see him, it's always a couple years more in the future, a few and another couple dozen million dollars required. So it keeps shifting. Last time I spoke to him and Max, I think that the earliest date for FDA was late 2023, early 2024. Now that's FDA. Obviously here in Europe, we would need it to also be under the European Medicines Association, the EMA, and the MHOA. And that might be a little bit further down the line because we've got to do more European studies. But in the States, the current target for MDMA is late 2023, early 2024. Don't quote me on that because it seems to be changing all the time. Psilocybin is a little bit, is a few years behind. It's They've just finished the 2B studies and they're about to go into phase three. And so that's going to be a few years behind. So I think psilocybin is going to be more like 2025, 2026. But fingers crossed, there's a lot of hoops to jump through. More money is required. But it does look absolutely inevitable that within the next five years, let's say, we will have MDMA and psilocybin as approved medicines. Which would be absolutely outstanding. So many people could be helped and so many different issues could be addressed. One particular population that comes to mind in the U.S. is the veteran population. It's a particularly vulnerable group. And for example, our focus of our team at Gateway Sciences centers upon the initiative of facilitating treatments and helping these individuals. Have you conducted any studies with or had treatments with former military personnel? So the uh, military personnel is a particularly US-focused approach. The USA is, as we know, one, one of the major militaristic powers in the world. And so you have a very strong emphasis on combat vets. And I can see that's a really important population for MDMA. I've PTSD. I've been working in PTSD for 30 years, and I must have seen two dozen vets. So for me, PTSD isn't about combat vets. For me, PTSD is about child abuse and maltreatment. I've seen thousands of cases of PTSD, but the combat vets thing is much stronger in the States than anywhere else in the world. And it makes it a good angle for MDMA research because they are such an important population to treat. And what's interesting about even combat PTSD with vets is they still, on the whole, mostly are people who've experienced child abuse and maltreatment. And I think this is interesting around PTSD research. If you take 100 soldiers into battle, 95 of them will come back fine, even though they've experienced horrific traumatic events. 5% five, 5 of them will come back with PTSD. But then when you look at those five, hey presto, they've all been abused as children on the whole. So even combat PTSD, even adult-acquired traumatic illness 
is usually associated with earlier attachment disruption problems. So for me as a child and adolescent psychiatrist, PTSD is about the childhood attachment issues. And MDMA is very good at combating that because what MDMA does so uniquely pharmacologically is it turns off the amygdala. And the amygdala is the fear part of the brain. And it's this intensive amygdala experience that prevents people from accessing treatment. By the time you're in your 30s, 40s, 50s, you have become an absolute expert at not talking about that thing that happened to me when I was 10 years old. You can't even name it. And you use alcohol, you use heroin, you self-harm, all of these distracting activities to not think about that thing. And then on MDMA, you can do that. You can go there because that amygdala is switched off and you can do the psychotherapy that you've not been able to do for the whole of your life. So it provides, again, this unique window of opportunity in which the patient can address these usually forbidden and avoidant thoughts that they wouldn't normally dream of going to. And so that that makes MDMA a really, really powerful tool for traumas of all. That is, it's truly fascinating. And it's so outstanding to know that hopefully very soon there will be a compound and that you can take in a clinical setting that will truly be a basis for healing and being able to live life fully without having to repress things and just be stuck in loops emotionally and thought loops. So one thing, of course, is the treatment of mental health problems. Do you think there's also a role for the use of psychedelics for prevention? Yeah, absolutely. And also not just prevention, but I don't think that psychedelics should have to be confined to a clinical population. I think that in the future, we're going to see the development of wellness centers and retreats in which non-clinical healthy people can use psychedelics in a semi-clinical supportive environment for personal growth and development. Families and communities, these, the indigenous uses of psychedelics and the non-Western uses of psychedelics um, have used them in this way as an important rite of passage and for increasing community cohesion and bringing people together and obviously as tools for spiritual and sacred development. And I think all of these things can happen as well as clinical uses. And I think the two different models can exist at the same time. So we can have a medical center where you have doctors and nurses and psychologists delivering psychedelics for people with severe mental health problems. And then you can, on another part of town, have a retreat center where relatively healthy, well people can go to experience the psychedelic experience in a safe setting for their personal growth and development. And I can see both of those models coexisting. Ben, that's a really important point you brought up because on the one side, of course, there is the healing that can happen, the transformation via the use of psychedelic psychedelics. And on the other side, there is these rites of passage. And especially in Western cultures, we don't have these initiations anymore. And then, of course, other things that can help our well-being, help us connect more deeply to others, help us find back to our true nature, which I believe is we are cooperative species, not a species that 
is born with the desire to wage war on each other. With regards, I'd like to talk about cannabis just briefly. In your perspective, is there something to be learned from the missteps of federal rescheduling of cannabis in the U.S. in order to effectively put programs in place for these psychedelic therapies? You'd have to forgive me. I can't speak with great authority about the the approval systems in the U.S. because obviously I'm a clinician working here in the U.K. I have I was one of the first psychiatrists to have provide medical cannabis in the U.K. and I've provided over 500 scripts for cannabis in the UK. And we're quite a few years behind you in the States in terms of moving forward with medical cannabis and recreational cannabis. I've been watching the States very carefully, and I'm very impressed by this move towards we're getting to a point where the majority of states have some form of medical cannabis, and many states now have recreational cannabis legalization, which is fantastic. Drug prohibition is an appalling thing. It's unethical, it's immoral, it's unpleasable, it's unscientific. And it causes the death and harm to young people. Drugs don't kill people. Prohibition does. There's no question whatsoever that drugs are dangerous. They should be regulated, not banned. Banning things does not make them go away. It just hands the franchise to the mafia, who are quite happy to produce and distribute and supply people to use drugs. It's an absurdly terrible sociopolitical idea. So any changes in that are going to be good and is going to help the health of the nation. And it's also, it's not, I think drug policy reform needs to look at the way it approaches this. Because I think people who are critical of drug policy reform think that those that want drug policy reform are the drug users themselves. So of course the hippies want drug policy reform because they want to get high and not get busted. That is not the reason for drug policy reform. The reason is the drug policies are just the wrong policies. Whether you use drugs or not, even if you hate drugs and never use them, they're still the wrong policies for you, the non-drug user. So I think an analogy I would give is, say, take something like horse riding. Yeah, I have no interest whatsoever in horse riding. Couldn't care less about horse riding. I am not a horse rider. But I still would like to know that the policies that govern horse riding are the correct ones, especially if it's costing me, the taxpayer, 20 billion pounds a year to mop up the problems due to poor horse riding policy. That's how we should be looking at drug policy reform. It's not about facilitating drug use for drug users. It's about the right policy for society, whether you use drugs or not. I don't even know if that was the correct answer to your question, but I wanted to get that off my chest. Yes, and thank you for doing that, Ben. And thank you for the great analogy with the horse riding. And thank you for taking a stand and being so outspoken about this really important subject matter. Also for people who are looking for careers and certifications in psychedelic-assisted therapies, can you recommend any educational resources? I'm personally familiar, of course, with MAPS, CIAS, both in the US and then, of course, Synthesis out of the Netherlands. Is there any guidance you can give to our inclined listeners? Yeah, personally, you can go on my website, drsessa.com, where all my papers and books are. And there's a wealth of fields there that you can have. There's groups like Drug Science, which is a UK-based drug charity. Obviously, MAPS and Compass Pathways have lots of material on there. And then, like you said, there's various psychedelic training programs, the CS, MMA in Australia. We here at Awaken Life Sciences provide psychedelic therapist training. I think a really important part about that is we provide psychedelic therapist training to people who are already clinicians. You have to be a clinician. You can't just do a three-week course on psychedelics and call yourself a clinician. Just like you couldn't do a 
I, I, you've got to think of psychedelic therapy as a specialist form of therapy. You have to already be a clinician. I get some people who kind of contact me and they go, oh, Ben, I want to be a psychedelic therapist. And I say, why? And they go, because I love taking LSD. But that is not a good reason to be a psychedelic therapist. It should be because I love working with depression and PTSD and anxiety. And I'm trained in that field. And I've spent years working in hospitals and wards and community settings and police stations and schools. And I'm an excellent clinician. And now I want to add psychedelic therapy on top of that as a specialism. So we would only train people who are already clinicians. Now, there's lots of different sorts of clinicians, doctors, nurses, social workers, psychotherapists, counselors, clinical psychologists. So the first thing to do is to become a clinician down one of those routes. And some of those are faster than others, and some of them are longer than others. And then once you've done that, then go forward into psychedelic therapy training as a specialist form of psychotherapy. And thank you so much for that, Ben. And thank you so much for your passion passion and the purpose, your mission. It's really outstanding to witness that and be able to connect with you today. For people who want to learn more about you, you already mentioned your website. Is there any other place they can do so or perhaps reach out? So Awaken Life Sciences. Yes, Awaken Life Sciences. We have a kind of corporate website that explains all behind the company and our research and development plans. And then we have a clinics website. Patients can self-refer through the clinics website. They don't need a medical referral. They can refer online and then we'll get in touch with them and bring and carry them through the process towards treatment in our awakened clinics. Yeah, get in touch and be part of it. And I think also young people who are interested in this, this is still, there's still so much more to come in this field. And don't be put off by people who say that this is controversial. This is not controversial. This is cutting edge psychiatry. This is at the leading edge of neuroscience. It's not some crazy fringe subject just done by bearded people in California. In every New York University, Johns Hopkins University, Yale, Harvard, Oxford, Cambridge, Imperial, Cardiff, Bristol, UCLA, UCL, these are not fringe organizations. These are major neuroscientific research centers. All of those names I just gave you are running psychedelic research programs. This is not a fringe subject. This is where we are in modern neuroscience. So get involved, young people. Become part of this. It's not too late. You are still a pioneer. Excellent. Ben, thank you so much for your time. Thank you for joining us on Gateway Sessions podcast today. It was truly a pleasure to pick your brilliant brain. Thank you very much, Ariana. I've really enjoyed it. Gateway Sciences, leading the human race to inner space.